Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. If you think it's tough trying to raise a kid, try raising 185 hungry kids. Hey, it's Tim Young of the TheSelfSufficientLife.com. Today, I'll share the story of a New York lawyer and a high-end architect who decided to ditch their demanding clients so they could herd goats. You know, it's funny how things go full circle in life. Something becomes a fashionable rage one decade, only to be frowned upon the next. Wait long enough and the bell bottoms and tie-dyes come back in vogue again. And it's that way with lives, too. Often we wander far away from where we were born, just as Catherine Spann did. I lived in Westchester County, New York, and I commuted into the city and worked in Manhattan as a lawyer. Yeah, but that's nowhere near where she grew up. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. My parents divorced when I was pretty young, and my mom was a school teacher and um, was disabled. You know Durham. It's where that movie Bull Durham was set. The one where Kevin Costner is a minor league baseball player and Susan Sarandon was a middle-aged groupie. This is the damnedest season I've ever seen. I mean, the Durham Bulls can't lose and I can't get away. The minor league baseball team is the Durham Bulls. Back in the 1800s, Durham became known as the Bull City as a result of a marketing campaign by Blackwell and Company. They formed the Bull Durham Tobacco Company and promoted products such as Bull Durham Smoking Tobacco. Blackwell became the first big company to be located in Durham, and its tobacco warehouse turned Durham into a center where tobacco farmers could bring their tobacco to be sold at high prices. Of course, that was back in the 1800s, and the tobacco industry has changed a bit since then. But many of those nostalgic old barns still dot the countryside where Catherine was raised. But her family didn't farm, and Catherine was a... Very timid, very quiet bookworm with no other children in the neighborhood except for my sister. And my family was devoutly opposed to breaking a sweat. (laughs) Devoutly opposed to breaking a sweat. That's funny. Although we did grow up, like, you know, we always had a garden and bees and things like that. So, um, and I didn't grow up with a microwave and I grew up canning and making things and, you know, baking bread. Um... So in that sense, a a bit of a retro upbringing, um, even at the time that I was growing up. My mom's family had had farmland for a long time, but we were not on a farm. Mom leased her land for um, growing tobacco, and tobacco really is what sent me to college. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Hearing tobacco being used in such a positive context as sending a kid to college. I remember reading about that in Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. King Solver wrote, I grew up in tobacco country. We knew what tobacco meant to our lives. It paid our school teachers and it blacktopped our roads. For my classmates who went to college, it was tobacco that sent them. I mean, not only that, but tobacco built the college I went to. I went to Duke. And still, even though, you know, I don't have fond thoughts for um, the role of cigarettes and I don't know, in a lot of the problems in healthcare, um, I do still had to get somewhat nostalgic seeing it out in the field. Barbara Kingsolver seemed to feel the same way in her book. And then she added, yes, it's a plant that causes cancer after a long line of people, post-farmer, have specifically altered and abused it. And yes, it takes chemicals to keep the blue mold off the crop. And 
It sends people to college. It makes house payments, buys shoes, and pays doctor bills. It allows people to live with their families and shake hands with their neighbors in one of the greenest, kindest places in the world. Tobacco is slowly going extinct as a U.S. crop, and that's probably a sign of good civic sense. But it's also a cultural death when all those who grew it must pack up, go find an apartment somewhere, and work in a factory. So tobacco put Catherine through college, first in Duke, then Vanderbilt. And just as King Solver predicted, Catherine packed up and moved north to New York with her new law degree in hand. And with huge student loan debt, she got busy earning money to pay it all off. I did commercial and constitutional law. I didn't have any experience with criminal law except for the occasional tidbits that came my way when I was working for a judge. Then at one point I um, moved over and worked for the state attorney attorney general's office. And there I was doing, again, some employment, some constitutional, and representing state officers and agencies. So, you know, people often talk about how hard the work is on a farm, especially a dairy farm. How it's 24-7, 365 days a year. But you know, Catherine's job in New York wasn't really that much different. It was not uncommon for me to work all-nighters and then a couple times double all-nighters. Um, so for, we're just working straight for 48 hours. Um, you know, I would have a car that would take me back to the, um, yeah, the, the firm would order a car, take me back to my house, I could shower. Uh, it would wait while I showered and then take me back to the office. Well, yeah, that last part's different. I mean, sometimes you don't get a chance to shower on the farm. And when you do have a free moment in the country, there's not a lot out here to do. Of course, New York does have lots to offer, but who has the time? Perversely, being in New York, you're working so much in that culture that there's not nearly enough time to actually enjoy a lot of the, the the offerings there. I hear that over and over again from people in the city. People so busy with life that they have no time to enjoy life. But every now and then, Catherine did get a break from work and had enough time to take in what New York had to offer. And it was on one of those occasions where she met Dave Crabby. Dave and I met standing in line to see a Nashville-based musician um, just on Spring Street in New York City. He was a sort of architectural digest level residential general contractor. Dave worked on big projects. I mean, fancy projects. Projects like, well, you know, like things that most of us could never even imagine. One of his clients was the guy who sold and bought back Snapple and owns Wendy's and He's, um, you know, I guess a pretty big name. He has a ridiculous amount of money, of course. Um, and Dave worked on projects like a 40,000 square foot addition on this man's personal ice hockey rink. You know, these are people where you're not interacting with the, you know, the owner necessarily. You're interacting with his estate manager. And because they have so much money, they um, are completely divorced from the normal parameters of day-to-day life and civility. So um, they expect that money can buy everything. Very, very few of us can relate to that world. I mean, I sure can't. And for Dave, even after finishing a project, he was at the beck and call of his clients. One of those worlds is simply a world that has very few people in it. You know, there's, I mean, that's truly the, it's not the 1%, it's the 0.01%. You know, literally, Dave received calls for his, his customers didn't know how to change a light bulb. Well, that 0.01% of the population has an enormous amount of money. And it's tempting to tap into that if you're a contractor. I mean, 
you can make so much money, but you can also cut so many years off your life. He was doing these really huge projects and um, was really stressed out by his clientele. I just said, if you do one more of these big jobs, you're going to have your first heart attack. But Dave wasn't the only one enduring stress. I mean, Catherine had a lot of stress in her job, too. That was an environment where it was expected that you wouldn't have um, an extra period or an extra space on a page. Really high emphasis on perfection. It's not just the stress of perfection. Living in those fast-paced environments where services are billed by the minute puts everyone in a bubble. A bubble where participants are measured and compared by what their billing rate is. Similar to the Hunger Games, I guess. We'll call it the billing games. It's a world that fosters a false sense of worth and a game that leads to resentment. I spent so much time at my desk and later years in New York, I was getting involved in some community groups, but I found myself sort of presenting people who weren't as active or as engaged or as involved. It's like, I can find time to do this, and I work all these crazy hours. Why can't other people find time to do this? And yeah, I didn't want to have that narrative in my head. I, I felt like at a certain point when you're billing your time, you know, or somebody else is billing your time out at, you know, almost $500 an hour, there's a part of you, even if you don't really believe it, that can't help to be like, my time's worth this, blah, 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 blah. I don't think anybody's time is worth particularly more than anybody else's. Um, you know, I feel like I, I had some, you know, I probably had some minutes where I came up with some really genius idea that was worth, you know, it was like a $10,000 minute. And then other times it was like a $2 minute. And I think that's how all of us are. You know, we all have, um, you know, we hope to have a couple of $10,000 minutes in our lives. Life's too short, man. I've been in both worlds, the ultra high stakes world of big business and the 24-7 on-call world of farming. The money's on that side for sure, but the freedom is on the side of modern homesteading. I quit and I you know, I could afford at that point to at least take a little bit of time and not um, not take something else right away. And, and if you give yourself time to think in life, then it's interesting to see where that can take you. I do think that that's probably the biggest thing about the economic treadmill that you know many of us are on, that it is difficult to, to truly do deep, deep assessment of your life. So Dave and Catherine took that time and they did a deep assessment of their life. And they decided they wanted to change. So they started planning a way out, an exit strategy from the rat race. Finally, I just called up Dave one day. I was like, I think I have to quit today. He wrapped up the project he was on. And then we started talking about semi-exit strategies. Um, and he always wanted to have a farm. Wow. Just like that, they began looking for property. They didn't really care where it was, just somewhere far away from New York City. But Catherine had family in Raleigh-Durham area. The Triangle, as it's called. After trading the tobacco fields of North Carolina for the bright lights of New York, it was finally time for the prodigal daughter to come home. My father, who's somewhat elderly now, and my sister were still in the Triangle area. We considered, weirdly, either... Um, my home area or Panama. But if we did Panama, we wouldn't have been farming. It would be something else. And, you know, I like my um, my dad and my sister's company. And, you know, I figured my dad wasn't going to be around forever. Um, and so that was part of, part of what drove us to focus back here. And, you know, we were looking for things within a certain radius of them and a certain number of acres. And yeah, I think we also really fell for the old 
um, outbuildings and old structures on this particular land and the, you know, like hundred plus year old trees. Dave may have had a vague notion of wanting to have a farm, but farming as a business wasn't something Dave and Catherine really contemplated. That was something they'd kind of stumble into later. In that sense, they mirrored my own path out of the rat race. My wife and I just knew we wanted out and wanted to live in the country. It was only after we got there that we decided to farm. In Catherine's case, it was only after they bought the land that they fell in love with goats. We just really wound up falling for goats. We just loved them. So they decided to start a farm, named appropriately enough Prodigal Farm. They fell in love with goats and had to have them. So, using savings from their former careers, they got the land and the goats and began their farming journey. Then they basically said, whoops, if we're going to raise goats, we need to do something with them. That usually leads to one of two alternatives, milking goats for a dairy operation or raising goats for meat. We actually do both because boys have to have a career path too. True, but that's some career path. I mean, it's usually bad news if you're born a male in the farming world. After all, one bull can easily service 30 cows, one rooster for every 10 hens, and so on. All the other males need a career path, as Catherine said. Actually, almost all males born on a small farm go the meat route, since it's normal to introduce outside genetics back into the herd. And you don't usually want to promote from within either. Yeah, that corporate nomenclature does apply to the farm. Catherine's saying that you don't want to breed the son back to the mother. Hearing Catherine and Dave's story reminds me so much of our own. With no farming experience, my wife and I found ourselves surrounded with hundreds, thousands of free-range chickens, turkeys, pigs, sheep, cows, ducks, you name it, all within the first couple of years. Likewise, Catherine says, I think we probably had well over a thousand goats born on this farm, and it hasn't been that long. Yeah, we had 185 kids born just this past year. You think childcare is tough? Try dealing with 185 kids being born per year. And if you do it right, you're trying to get them born around the same time in a very tight window. In my dream world, they would come all in a week. That's also a little bit of a nightmare, but we did actually have all of them born except for one um, in 30 days this year, which was fantastic. Let's take a step back for those of you who are new to how the whole milking thing works. A lot of people don't know that you've got to continually breed your female animals if you want to keep them in milk. For cows, goats, and sheep, that normally means breeding once a year so that they'll calf, lamb, or kid once a year. I mean, the trigger for a female cow to produce milk is the same as that in a woman. She needs to give birth. Then the lactation cycle of animals isn't that much different from that of humans. The milk flow increases to meet the needs of the infant, then declines over a period of time until the calf or child is weaned. The thing is, on a farm, you can have a lot of births around the same time. In Catherine's case, 185 kids all at once. Now that's a lot of kid care. It's a little bit like being on some sort of battlefield where bombs are dropping all the time. I, I mean, our does are in really good shape because we're very pasture-based and they have really good nutrition. So most of them can kid unassisted. But, you know, they, we also have a high rate of triplets and quadruplets. So, you know, if you've got 12 or 16 legs in you, that's sort of like spaghetti that is, you know, can be a little bit harder to get them all organized in the in the proper proper exit, you know, for birthing. So sometimes you've got to help out with those. And then on the other hand, you've got the already born kids who we take the kids away at 36 hours 
and we raise them because, of course, we're dairy and we want the milk. That means you've got 180 really hungry customers um, who are all hollering to be fed at the same time. Not all farms operate this way, of course. I mean, many farms want births to be spread throughout the year so that they're always producing milk. But many small farms, such as Dave and Catherine's, aim to have a specific milking and cheese-making cycle. They'll milk twice a day, every day, usually for about nine months or so. Actually, about 300 days for both cows and goats. Sheep have a shorter lactation cycle and are generally milked only for maybe 180 days. As the animal approaches the end of its lactation cycle, the farmer begins the process of drying them off to prepare for the next breeding cycle. We moved to once a day milking on Thanksgiving, and then any girls who haven't already dried themselves off by Christmas, we are drying off between Christmas and New Year's. And then um, kidding starts again March 15th. For Dave and Catherine, that time between New Year's and into February is about all the downtime they get. We ask for staff to focus any vacation time that they're doing for that period. And if we're, you know, that's the only time that we can really take a vacation at this point. Um, you know, and I may try to do some more marketing things or try to go ahead and get tax stuff done because once kidding season hits again, all else must stop. It's really way more than full time. It's just crazy. So now that she's a farmer, it's hard to imagine a life being more diametrically opposite from Catherine's job as a lawyer. And it's a rewarding occupation, but not exactly one that gives you a lot of time off. I like all the aspects of the work we do. I sometimes wish it was not quite so seven days a week Farm life has a way of teasing you. Every season, every year, you get better at it, or at least you think you do. You get closer and closer to getting things under control, and it always seems that you're almost there to that point where you can breathe. We keep getting closer and closer to being able to take days off, and some of that, I think, is developing some personal discipline in that regard, but not there yet. In the rat race, you're always on the treadmill. Get up, get dressed, fight traffic on the way to work, work with strangers, fight traffic on the way home, get a paycheck, pay the bills, repeat next week. That's the rat race treadmill. But it's not the only treadmill. You know, Mother Nature is a treadmill in her own way, especially on dairy. You know, you got to be milking them twice a day every day or it dries up. I mean, you know, and you can't not make the cheese. You got to do that. So the babies can't not be fed. Um, you can't miss your windows for planting. The, you know, all of those are things that are fairly hard and fast. You can move them a little, you know, little bit, but not so much. It makes the deadlines that courts imposed in some ways seem um, laughably less serious. Take that, Your Honor. Court deadlines are laughably less serious than those on the farm. Still, on the surface, it seems that Catherine and Dave have just traded one set of stress for another. But that's not really the case. Being busy with work, with obligations, isn't the same as stress. And for Dave and Catherine, the work they do today is much more rewarding than what they did before. It is aligned with my values. My days are diverse. I can continue to grow in so many different ways because we're doing so many different things. I feel like I'm creating community in a way that I didn't get to do as much. I mean, lawyers do amazing, important work in in a lot of um, government and community organizations. So there's definitely a role for growing community as a lawyer. But food is a connector and a community builder in some ways even more. I feel like I've been able to exercise my values 
I don't work less. I probably work more. I earn a heck of a lot less money, but I'm not unhappy about it. And I never regret having made my decision. How many times have you heard this by now? Folks opt out of the rat race for any number of reasons. They become farmers, homesteaders, or simply embrace more preparedness. They figuratively unplug from the consumption society, even if they don't literally go off grid. And as Catherine said, they never regret having made that decision. But as I've also said in every episode, you got to earn money doing something. For Catherine and Dave, that meant starting a farmstead cheese business. So how does one go from being a lawyer to becoming a cheesemaker? Well, we're going to find out right after this quick break. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Layman's started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Layman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Layman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's for a simpler life. Find them at layman's.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. We're back with the story of the prodigal daughter who returned to North Carolina to start Prodigal Farm. Only, it wasn't a tobacco farm like those the Durham area was famous for. Instead, it was a farmstead cheese business using milk from pasture-raised goats. The only problem was, Catherine was a lawyer and knew nothing about making cheese. Really, I just started off experimenting on a stovetop basis and kept trying progressively harder things. We did a couple of workshops, although really most of my cheeses come out of my own experimenting, you know, and kind of synthesizing various other culinary traditions. In that sense, Catherine was able to benefit from having lived so long in New York. The things I liked most about being in New York were it's one of the greatest places in the world to educate your palate. Having had a chance to kind of at least know culinarily, you know, what my target was, even if I didn't have any culinary background or farming background or had ever had anything other than a house cat before that. True, but still, there's a difference between knowing what cheese tastes good and how to make good cheese. Catherine did take a farmstead cheese course at North Carolina State, but... It's not like it teaches you that much about um, making cheese at your scale. It's a little bit more about regulatory, regulatory aspects and business aspects. It was more some business, some sanitation. There, um, you were in there involved in some cheese makes, but um, it was such a different scale that it was kind of divorced from certainly where I could start out business-wise, you know, because they've got fancier, fancier and much bigger equipment. I get it. Most farmstead or artists and cheesemakers start on a small scale, and it's hard to find a class or school that's similar to the modest scale that most of us start with. That means if you want to learn, you either need to get a consultant to set you up. We did not work with a consultant. Or become an apprentice and learn on someone else's dime. You're only going to learn by making mistakes. It's a question of, are you making your mistakes on your time and your dime or somebody else's time and somebody else's dime? And that's what you get out of an apprenticeship. You get to make your mistakes on somebody else's time and dime and hopefully profit from their mistakes as well. 
But Catherine didn't apprentice with anyone else. She took the same path that I did when I first became a farmstead cheesemaker. She learned it all at once on her dime. So let me define a couple of these terms you're hearing in this story. There's a difference between being a farmstead cheesemaker and purely an artisan cheesemaker. Farmstead means that the milk you're using comes from your farm, your animals. Artisan cheese means that you're making cheese almost completely by hand and in small batches. But you don't have to milk the animals yourself. Instead, you can purchase milk from local dairies, have it delivered, and just focus on the cheese making. Since artisan cheesemakers are free from milking animals, they can set up shop anywhere. As a result, there are cheesemakers located in and around major cities, such as Atlanta, New York, Seattle, and others. If you'd like to find out more about this opportunity, I've created an online course about how to get started in artisan cheese. It's at startacheesebusiness.com. But Catherine and Dave chose the farmstead route because, well, they, they love goats, remember? That's why they started farming in the first place but also because it gives them more control over the milk quality, characteristics, and animal welfare, something that's very important to Dave and Catherine. Their farm, Prodigal Farm, is animal welfare approved, which means that they adhere to specific standards for dairy goat husbandry. And there's another benefit of farmstead cheese, mainly a marketing benefit. The cheesemaker can claim the cheeses have a sense of terroir. Yeah, that's a French word that means from the land. You hear it a lot in the wine world and increasingly in the world of cheese. After all, cows, sheep, and goats eat grass, weeds, and brush, all of which come from the land. They impart a flavor to the milk, which translates to the cheese. Now, this really isn't the case on large dairies where cows aren't even allowed to sniff grass, much less taste it. Remember, over 80% of milk produced in America comes from factory farms. Yes, even over 80% of the organic milk you see in the store comes from factory farms, according to the USDA. Dairy cows are raised on concrete, and feed is just brought to them. The feed is called a total mixed ration, or a TMR. And a TMR is a mix of forages, greens, minerals, vitamins, feed additives, other stuff. So, while cows evolve to range and eat grass, almost all of them find themselves standing on concrete, waiting for the food truck to come. Just like many people in the rat race waiting for the roach coach to arrive at lunchtime. But by choosing the farmstead path, Dave and Catherine more than doubled their learning curve. They had to learn not only how to make and market cheese, but also how to milk goats while caring for them and the land. That's a lot to bite off at once. Believe me, I know. I've done it. And Catherine approached it the same way I did. She took a leap of faith. I did not have enough information to do great business planning. I mean, certainly tried to assess the market, but it was definitely much more a leap of faith, and you could pay a, a steep price for that. That steep price comes in many forms. Making cheese that isn't up to your standards, so you toss it. In my case, we raised pigs in the woods, and in my first year of cheese making, I think the pigs set a record for consuming organic blue cheese. The bottom line is that unless you've already got experience, You've just got to learn on the job. Yeah, because it's been sort of on-the-job learning all the time. Like, there's so many different skills to learn from the marketing, both direct and wholesale, to it, it just goes on and on. Because I'm kind of, as a small business, you're all the different departments rolled up into one, from HR to, um, you know, bookkeeping to marketing. And then, of course, there's the, you know, 
IVOS is a very multifaceted business because we rota- rotationally graze goats on pasture. So we have to be, you know, grass and other forage farmers. We've got the care, herd care of the animals, both the milkers and the meat side. We've got the making the cheese. So um, I did not have enough knowledge about all of those different facets by any stretch when we started out to it's really mostly with the benefit of hindsight that I can really um, do great planning, which I do. Planning for me now is a continual activity. Did you get all that? Here, let me break down everything Catherine and Dave have to be good at. They have to be expert marketers, both wholesale and direct. They have to manage employees. They have to breed goats, tend to kids, and raise the males for the meat market. Yeah, in the farming world, it's not usually a good career choice to be male. Then, let's not forget they have to be cheesemakers, so they need to be expert at making and aging cheese. And oh yeah, they have to be excellent at pasture and forage management, because that's what the goats eat, and the quality of the forage, in part, dictates how much milk will be produced. We budget for around three quarters of a gallon um, per girl per day for about a you know, 270, 300 day period. And yes, sometimes it's going to be more, sometimes it's going to be less. So they're aiming for three quarters of a gallon of milk per goat per day. That's about six and a half pounds of milk per day. In the farming and cheesemaking world, we don't go by gallons. We go by pounds. Since a gallon of milk is considered to weigh 8.6 pounds, three quarters of a gallon works out to just under six and a half pounds. Of course, milk production is critically important to the business side of dairy farming, whether you're selling fluid milk or cheese. As I mentioned, one way to maximize production is forage quality. That's why commercial dairies feed those total mix rations that scientists and nutritionists concoct for them. But genetics is another leg of the milking stool. Whether it's cows, goats, or sheep, there are specific breeds that are bred for milk production. For instance, in the cow world, Angus is well known for high beef quality. The Angus breed is great for carcass yields, but they're lousy at milk production. Likewise, Jersey cows are known for producing creamy, high-fat milk, but not nearly as much volume as the much larger Holstein breed. Now, we all know Holsteins. They're the black and white cows that can be seen dotting the countryside and holding those Chick-fil-A signs. They're holding those signs because it's the spent dairy cows that make up most of your fast food burgers. Spent meaning that they're no longer a great milker. Dairy cows don't have great meat carcasses. You'd rather have a ribeye from an Angus than a Holstein. But once the meat is ground up, they make fine burgers. If you've ever eaten a fast food burger, and I know that you have, you've eaten an industrial dairy cow. But Catherine and Dave aren't trying to maximize milk production because they have to sell meat as well. Remember, they can't milk the boys, and you got to figure that half of those 185 kids will be boys. And if Dave and Catherine focus solely on a breed for milk production, they'd have good milk flow for one element of their business, but lousy meat characteristics for the other. So they take a hybrid approach. I really like crossbreeds. Most of our dairy girls are hybrids of other, um, multiple dairy breeds. And then I, because I don't want to keep all of my girls, I mean, all of my, you know, all of the girls that are born on the farm, I don't want to keep them for... Um, for replacements, I only would need like, you know, maybe 15 or 20 a year and that enables me to grow even. 
So I breed ideally about two-thirds of my does to a meat buck, a boar, um, because I have a good market. I have a good market for the meat and for the boar cross babies. So that enables me to have a better carcass um, on the meat side. But there's another way Prodigal Farm earns money from its goats besides meat and cheese. This year I sold all of my kids to a guy who works with um, places, um, goats with 4-H groups across the state. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool to be able to sell about, you know, 50 kids too um, and know that they're going off for human kids to work with them. So you can get a sense for the complexity of running a farmstead cheese business, even a relatively small one like Particle Farm. With hundreds of goats being born per year and needing some type of care and marketing each day of the year, the work never ends. But the core enterprise of the farm is artisan cheese. Yes, I said artisan because on a small farm like Prodigal Farm, the cheese is both farmstead, meaning made from the milk of their animals, and artisan, meaning made by hand. That distinction is important because it gets to the heart of how Catherine can be competitive with her cheeses. We started off, as most goat producers do, making some more of the fresh goat cheese, but I can't compete with a confinement-based commodity producer. My my costs are just higher, and so since I can't produce it as cheaply as I, you know, as they can, I'm, it's hard for me to get much market share. And so I tried instead to create sort of destination cheeses that are much more, I guess, really appropriately in the American original category. I'm trying to create cheeses that people from across the country would seek us out, which they do, because it's something unique, and that's the only way I, it. I can only charge that higher price per pound if it's something that there's not really a good parallel for elsewhere. It's interesting speaking with Catherine now after she's been doing this for a few years, but many of you may want to know how she learned what to do. I mean, they bought a piece of land that had no animals, no milking parlor, certainly no cheese room. And even though there were some top-notch dairy and cheese-making consultants, Catherine and Dave didn't work with a consultant. So how'd they know what to do to get started? When I asked her, Catherine just shrugged it off as common sense. Well, I mean, when you, you know, you have to milk the goats, then you have to store it, and then it has to move from, you know, from the goats to the storage to the, um, to the cheese room, and then you have to have a place for cold storage once it's complete. So that literally d- d- drives a certain structure for the building, knowing that things have to move in a certain direction, and you just get it's. it's follow the direction that things have to move. And then we worked closely with our regulators to make sure that they reviewed our plans and gave us feedback along the way. Yeah, I mean, our state dairy inspectors were really helpful too when we set up our farmstead cheese operation. But I mean, come on, you still got to know how to build the plan. Dave, remember, was a builder. Oh yeah, well that helps. So in terms of, we built our dairy from scratch and I was nagging him for several months, like, we have to start working on the design. We have to start working on the design. We have to get this thing built. And he, in the back of his head, is like, I've built multi-million dollar buildings, blah, blah, blah. And he said he finally sat down and realized, oh, dear, I may have done that, but it was all residential, and this is a small manufacturing facility. But with that in mind, it's actually worked. We made very few errors, and it works really well for process flow. We tried to build it knowing that all the other dairies always wind up having to expand because it's never big enough. And still, we wound up doing an addition to build on hard cheese aging space. So if this is all new for you, it's a big decision whether a cheesemaker is going to produce fresh or aged cheeses. 
Fresh cheeses such as Chev and soft cheeses such as Camembert produce much higher yields. For every pound of milk, the cheesemaker gets much more cheese, often 15 to 25% yield at a minimum, depending on the species being milked and the cheese being made. But because those cheeses are high in moisture, they have short shelf lives, meaning they have to be sold quickly, so the cheesemaker has to excel at marketing. Otherwise, product goes to waste. Conversely, aged cheeses are very low-yielding. Parmesan and Gruyere, for instance, may yield 7-10%. to 10%. And they have to be aged for many, many months, usually at least 8 or 10. So in addition to the lower yields, there's the cost of keeping them cooled, the labor cost of tending to them, and the fact that you may not be paid for almost a year after milking the animal. But the cheeses have a long shelf life. Gruyere is good at three months, better at six months, and outstanding at a year. So that gives the cheesemaker a long window in which to sell the cheese. That window was something Catherine sorely needed. We didn't really have hard cheese aging space, and the smaller format cheeses were interesting to us. But as we got into it more, and I realized that I got the most milk in the summertime, and that's when my wholesale markets are really slumpy, I would wind up with an excess that um, I didn't have the skills to sell. And, you know, I don't want to toss cheese. And so in being able to make hard cheeses, I could then have a really diverse array of cheeses come fall and the holidays when the wholesale markets pick up. So it enabled me to sort of spread my my sales. I had production at one time and better sales at another time. So it enables me to bridge that. The parallels continue. After a few years with my own cheese operation, I had to expand and add more cheese aging space as well. We cheesemakers call that a cheese cave. It's not usually a real cave, though it can be, but it's called that because the goal is to emulate the moisture and temperature and airflow found in the caves where great cheeses were traditionally aged. Of course, it costs money to add on to a facility, so the question is, how do you fund it? Some people fund it out of their pocket, from their own savings. Others rely on grants or loans. But Catherine did what many folks have done in recent years. She relied on crowdfunding. I used Kickstarter in part because I felt like we already had a fairly supportive community. And I also felt like it was going to, in turn, enable us to build more community. So that seemed viable. And I got help from a couple of Duke Business School students in planning it. Trying to raise money for an expansion is stressful enough. But I was planning it at the same time I was getting chemo for a breast cancer diagnosis, and then we launched it right after I had a mastectomy. But that was when we were going to be on the cover of um, a local magazine, so you can't miss the chance for the press in doing your Kickstarter launch, so that's when you do it. And farming is kind of generally that way. You do things when they have to be done. I can't imagine how stressful that time must have been for Catherine and Dave. It's hard work every day running a farm, tending to bleeding goats, making cheese, delivering to customers. Then on top of that, add chemotherapy and a mastectomy while running a fundraising campaign? It just seems too much. But it doesn't matter if it's too much. Life either goes on or it doesn't. That's just the truth. And the great news is that life did go on, both for Catherine and the farm. And the Kickstarter campaign was a huge success, pulling in over $48,000. That sounds great, was great, 
but there's a misconception on the part of many when it comes to crowdfunding. It's not like an equity investment in a business when you get money that you don't have to pay back in exchange for a percentage of ownership. Almost all crowdfunding projects are essentially pre-selling product, or at least offering something else of value in exchange for the pledge. And that something else of value has to be fulfilled. It is hard work to fulfill. It's hard work to run it, to get people to all pledge within that finite period of time. And it's even harder work to then go and fulfill the, all the rewards. And we had $48,000 worth of rewards that we had to fulfill. Because then you have to go both build the cave and, and fulfill all those rewards. But with the cheese cave funded and built, it did free Catherine to begin making longer age cheeses. Cheeses like Dirty Girl. That is a washed curd and a natural rind cheese. And so that's one of the ones that we have that will go the longest aging-wise. So how do you make it? All of our cheeses are pasteurized, and that is a rennetted-style washed curd cheese. Okay, so she uses rennet to coagulate the milk as opposed to it being a lactic cheese. And she said it's a washed curd cheese. That means... After the curd is formed, we drain off some of the whey, add hot water, using that to um, increase the temperature of the curd whey mixture, um, and then keep stirring, drain, drain it off again, add some more water. Yeah, that's how cheeses such as Gouda are made, or Gouda or Howda, depending on where you're from. Replacing the whey with water produces a milder, sweeter cheese with a more elastic body. It also removes much of the lactose, making it a more tolerable choice for those who are lactose intolerant. Once the cheese is made, it needs to be pressed. But we don't have a cheese press. You know, part of farming and farmstead cheese making is there's kind of infinite expensive equipment that you could spend money on. You sometimes you just gotta make do with what you have. So our pressing system is kind of rigged with bins of water um, to help press the followers on the cheese. That's nothing. I made an award-winning cloth-bound cheddar cheese that I pressed with a car jack. I used a metal door frame and stacked three or four 25-pound truckles of cheddar on top of a car jack, then raised them until it bent the door frame. The building would literally start to creak, sending my wife fleeing with fear from the room. But that creaking and her shrieking told me that I had it pressed just right. Yeah, later I bought a pneumatic cheese press, but for years I pressed it with a car jack for the reason Catherine just mentioned. There's no shortage of things to buy on a farm, and there's only so much money to go around. So if you can do it without spending money, do it. I've actually got a video of me pressing cheese with my car jack in my online cheese course at startacheesebusiness.com, along with lots of other tips on how to start and run a profitable artisan cheese business. But back to Catherine's cheese, the dirty girl. After it's in the makeshift press... We're using bins of water, and then we extend the followers with some of our camembert molds. And again, it's not pretty, but it works. And then there, we have a... Um, a drying closet at this point that we are sort of toughening up the rinds in before we put it in our aging space. And our aging space has a radiant cooling system rather than a forced air system. Then once it's in the cheese cave... We brine wash it a few times um, during the aging process, mostly to sort of knock down some of the, the molds that grow on it. Dang, sounds good. I got to get me some of that. Everybody wants a piece of the dirty girl. I've had a lot of jobs in my life, from fast food cashier to CEO of high-flying companies, but I've often said the job I enjoyed the most was being an artisan cheesemaker. I just found it more rewarding and stimulating than anything else I've done. But sometimes, 
you can be a victim of your own success. Because if you get good at it, customers are going to want more and you'll have to expand. When employees come, it means that you're no longer a solo cheesemaker. You're a manager and a business owner. And you may not have as much time to do what you love to do, make cheese. I love the smell of curd, the working with curd, the piece of it all. I don't get to do as much of the cheese making because I, I, what I try to do is do a, a little bit of each, you know, sometime each week in this creamery, sometime each week with the animals, sometime each week on the marketing. But to make a viable business, I can't just do that. I have to do a lot more. Before we wrap up and I give you my three key takeaways from this segment, let me remind you that the show notes from this episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. There's also a complete transcript of this episode if you'd like to read it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, please take just a second to leave a review. It helps with the rankings and allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. So check out what Catherine and Dave are doing at prodigalfarm.com. That's prodigalfarm.com. And find out where you can buy or enjoy their cheeses at your favorite restaurant or cheese shop. Okay, so here we go. My three key takeaways from listening to Catherine's story. First, consider using Kickstarter. Or it's not the only one, of course. There's Indiegogo, GoFundMe, and others. But if you're thinking of starting or expanding a farming business, Cruise over to those sites and do a search on current and past projects. Just take a look at how others are funding their dreams and what rewards they're offering. There are even some farmers and cheesemakers who use Kickstarter to pre-fund their CSA programs. Basically, they're not raising money at all. They're just pre-selling what they produce. So take a look at that. Okay, the second takeaway is this. Find ways to make do. Catherine mentioned that she didn't have a cheese press. Now, I'm willing to bet that she and Dave could afford one, just as I could have instead of using that carjack all those years. But why invest the money if you don't have to? There's no escaping the fact that farming is expensive. Land, fencing, animals, buildings, equipment, that all costs money. But farming gives you a better opportunity for repurposing and improvising than any business I've ever seen. Farmers are famous for that kind of thing. So if you're planning a farm business, separate what you absolutely must buy from what you can get away with. And even if you have to buy, there's tons of opportunity to buy used. That applies to cheese vats, milk tanks, and all kinds of farming equipment. Now, here's my final takeaway. Did you hear Catherine say at the end how much she loves making cheese, but how little time she has now to do so? Think about that carefully before you start your farm or homestead business. I've said this on prior episodes, there's a difference between a business and a hobby. If you love making cheese or soap, but don't like managing employees, then you'll want to keep everything small. That will minimize your income and you'll need to plan for that, but it may maximize your enjoyment and you can't put a price on that. I guess what I'm saying is just visualize the life you want and then make that vision come true by taking your first step to independence and freedom, as I did, as Catherine and Dave did, by opting out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for A cup of coffee, four dollars gone 
They stick me in a cubicle And now I'm somebody's pawn The concrete jungles all around me There's gotta be a better way I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all the day While strangers teach and watch my children play I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay Not gonna live my life their way I'm opting out today Oh, I'm opting out today They hand me a paycheck so I can pay all I owe Kids wanna play but I